Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and I'm joined by Adam Grossman. Adam has quite the show today in an interview with Peter Feigen. Peter's had a very interesting journey that includes going from Madison Square Garden to the Milwaukee Bucks. Adam, can you tell us a bit more about Peter's journey? Absolutely. Uh, Peter brings more than two decades of dynamic corporate leadership to Milwaukee sports and entertainment scene. His talents, hard work, and dedication are the driving force behind the transformational vision for not only the Milwaukee Bucks and the new world-class Pfizer Forum, but for the city of, of Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin. Prior to joining the Bucks, Peter served as the chief marketing and revenue officer of Deluxe Entertainment Services Group, a major international entertainment company where he managed global business units and handled branding and business development. Prior to working at Deluxe, Peter was the president and chief operating officer of Marquis Jet Partners and NetJets, the world's leading private aviation company. Peter was integral in Berkshire Hathaway's NetJets acquisition of Marquis Jets in 2010 and played a central role in the integration of the two companies. After transitioning post-merger to the same responsibilities in NetJet, he led the company's uh, significant revenue growth. From 1998 to 2004, Peter worked as the, worked for the New York Knicks in a variety of different roles, culminating in his position as vice president of marketing. Under Peter's leadership, profits, season subscriptions, and suite revenues increased significantly. From 1993 to 1998, he held sales positions and marketing positions with Six Facts Theme Parks, which was then a Time Warner company. Adam recorded this interview as the NBA was was dealing with the pandemic, but the Bucks history prior to the pandemic, you know, from the interview may be even more interesting. Adam, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that history of the Bucks? Yeah, we're looking forward to sharing both what's happened uh, when Peter joined in 2014, uh, but also what happened as the team has been dealing um you know, with what's happening with the bubble, but also, you know, having a transformational superstar and Giannis Antetokounmpo joining the team and what the impact of that has been on the organization. Uh, but since taking over as president of the team in October of 2014, Peter has completely reimagined, rebuilt and re-energized the team's business operations, resulting in substantial increases in attendance, ticket revenue, merchandise revenue, partnership sales and TV viewership. He's assembled a top-line management team and has nurtured a corporate culture marked by accountability, collaboration, and fun. The Bucks were named one of Milwaukee's best places to work in 2015 to 2019, and Peter's inspired leadership was recognized when he was named the Milwaukee BizTime 2015 CEO of the year. All those things really translate to the Bucks are also really fun to watch, and I think that 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 obviously it rolls back into a lot of the things that, that you talk about in the interview with creating that, that culture. And so, you know, please enjoy this, this interview with Peter Feigen. Welcome everybody to the Northwestern Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Uh, today, we're very excited to have Peter Feigen and the Milwaukee Bucks and Pfizer Forum. Uh, on the podcast. Uh, Peter, first, welcome to the podcast. And then second, can you give a little background uh, about your career date and about your current role? Sure. Uh, nice to be here, Adam. Uh, simple story. Grew up a New York City kid, went to high school in Brooklyn, went to a small liberal arts college, Franklin and Marshall in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and really kind of started my career in sports entertainment with Six Flags theme parks to Madison Square Garden. Uh, to Marquee Jet, which is, and NetJets, kind of in the private aviation realm, all marketing and sales oriented and kind of on the revenue generation side. Um, a little stop 
with McAndrews and Forbes at Deluxe Entertainment, and then on the last six years to to run the Milwaukee Bucks, the building of Fiserv Forum, and kind of our our real estate development company and, and all of our business ventures here in Milwaukee. So. We definitely want to concentrate on, on what you're doing with Milwaukee and the Bucks, and it's good to see you know obviously got to support the team going with your shirt and the locker behind you. But um, to start out with you know um, with another team, which is the the Knicks in Madison Square Garden, um, can you talk about more about your experience at that time, kind of what you learned and how that impacted your career going forward? Yeah, it was great. It was a real inflection point. Uh, in 1999, I started at the New York Knicks. It was a strike shortened season. Yeah launch of the WNBA, so kind of how to learn how to launch a brand, how to sustain a brand during a lockout, um, and really for the first time in Madison Square Garden, it's the first time in in decades that they actually had to retail for the first time. So a big part of my job was building the plumbing to really have direct response and retail and sell tickets for the first time. I know that sounds kind of incredible in a, in a professional sports entertainment you know venue, but the, the Knicks were sold out for you know, 500 plus games and, and kind of when we got there, weren't really sold out anymore. So it, it really became, how do we how do we kind of recreate and, and, and create a, a network to sell tickets and to really retail and build back up the fan base? And in terms of that, you know, one of the things that we talk about in this class is a team that can struggle on the court uh, and and how do you kind of, you know, obviously it's a different situation now with the Bucks that you're in now, but with the Knicks, um, how were you able to build out that network and how were you able to engage and, and generate revenue if, if, you know, when times got a little bit tougher on the court? Yeah, well, I will tell you, polar opposites in Madison Square Garden and, and, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, yeah. we talk about large markets and small markets. I, yeah. I literally would say you'd have to be, a savant in in way the world has never seen before to really screw up Madison Square Garden. <laughs> you've got a DMA of 18 million people. You've got disposable income like you can't imagine. You've got a corporate business space that that is 10x that exists anywhere else. So so the garden really wasn't as, as big a challenge. You know, you you could actually strike out several times and still have other options. You know, as you as you kind of go as like. But great learning on how to build an infrastructure, how to build value, how to sustain relationships in every in every bucket of the business, whether it's on the media side, the sponsorship side, or the ticket side, which kind of like you know leapfrog forward you know a decade plus, and really it's the groundwork to to have the knowledge in Milwaukee where you you really can't screw up in a small market. You know you don't have that opportunity in a market, extended market of a million people, let's say, but really kind of a 600,000 person Midwestern market with not as much disposable income with real price sensitivity. You know, you don't have that endless pipeline of prospective sponsors and and ticket buyers and uh, and people. So so to really hone in the experience and, and kind of understand um, how difficult it is to acquire, you know, customers and then really to retain them in the sports entertainment business, which is like fighting for every disposable dollar you can imagine. Yeah, a couple of questions came up when you're talking about that. Um, one is, you know, you talk about small market, but one of the things you've been really good at articulating is almost the global nature of a small market team, right? The mobility of Milwaukee to reach into new international markets. Obviously, the team recently played in Paris. 
Um, Giannis has really helped with the international spread. So how do you balance the local market nature with the kind of the international and global market considerations that you're looking at now at the Bucks? Yeah, it's interesting. If you asked about this case study, you know, six years ago, I would have told yeah. you, how do we master local? How do we hit regional, national, and global? And, you know, with Giannis, Ante Decumbo is, is like our superstar and kind of how he's emerged the funnel's gone upside down, you know, really where our growth has been global, you know, on a, on a social basis and a digital basis, like it, it's incredible. You know, we compete with the largest markets on a, on a global template because we have that superstar. And then how do you take that equity and really, you know, take it and leverage it across the brand is, is what we found. So we've taken this international player who was the MVP of the league and it's kind of never happened before, you know, like that, that has a presence in Asia and Europe that continues to grow, you know, uh, on a multiple that's never been seen before and almost leverage it domestically in a real way. So you start as a global brand, you know, in, in a very local market. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's kind of this unbelievable opportunity for us to to do it so how does you know never five years ago would you fathom that we you know be translating you know and localizing all of our media vehicles in mandarin you know and, <laughs> and different things because we want those audiences you know we want to aggregate you know kind of fandom and be able to monetize those those audiences in a big way so so Giannis has certainly been that you know we call it the Giannis effect because it's certainly been the accelerant of, of kind of where the bucks have come. But I think for us, like we never wanted to act as a, as a small market team. We wanted to be aggressive and really kind of grab market share, compete locally. You know, we have an NFL team up the street in the green Bay Packers and, you know, in the, in the NFL, but, but really kind of our mantra is like, how do we become the default, you know, for, for any sports and entertainment fan. Yeah, and I think maybe we can start from, um, you know, you mentioned a global brand and how far you've come and what you wouldn't have thought of when you took the job. Maybe we can talk about, you know, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but what it was like taking the job, you know, taking the job of, of running the Bucks and how the owners approached you and what you were thinking about doing. And, you know, in, you know, it, it, earlier in, you know, the 2010s when you were thinking about this job, you know, what was that process like in your consideration of, you know, you, you uprooted your life, you moved to Milwaukee, you know, it was for a team that, you know, as you said, had a relatively local footprint at the time, um, but with aspirations to become a much bigger brand. So what was that thought process like for you um, when you were considering the role in the first place? So it's kind of like an interesting story. Um, you know, uh, I have an identical twin brother who's, who's a headmaster of a private school in New York City, who basically two of the owner's kids all went to as they were looking at Mark Lazary, like one of our, one of our primary owners, uh, started to look at and investigate purchasing teams maybe a decade ago. And my brother just suggested it to him in a parent meeting, hey, why don't you, you know, my brother's not the smartest guy in the world, but he's maybe <laughs> a different perspective and he certainly run a team PL before. Why don't you go? And a long story short, you know, probably, you know, 15 years ago, I was kind of exploring teams, which was kind of like a dream for, you know, anybody who's so interested in dumping into a data room, learning about the intricacies of a team, you know, leapfrog, you know, probably 10 chapters later of going to different teams, NFL, NBA, looking at prospects, get a call one Thursday night, you know, of Mark Lazary saying like, hey, can you get to Milwaukee tomorrow and meet with Senator Cole? You know, this might be an opportunity to buy the Milwaukee Bucks. And, uh, 
I called him, you know, 18 hours later and actually said like, oh no, it's a real opportunity. Like he's going to sell this team with, I didn't even fathom an operating position, you know, in this thing. I was more excited to just be part of, you know, I couldn't tell Mark, but if Mark gave me, you know, 10 games and great seats, I would have been like happy for the rest of my life. In the process. And then as it started to evolve, you know, this came, this became much more than I think any of us could have fathomed. We kind of take credit for it now as like kind of these, these visionaries that said, how do we take a 30 acre district? How do we create real estate development in, in residential, in commercial and entertainment? But when we first came, we really didn't see that, you know, it really became this opportunity with like, we've got to get a new arena. We've got to probably be like one of the last opportunities to look for public financing, like as we get an arena and keep an NBA team in a small market. And that was really the focus. And then it just really blossomed into this great opportunity. But but it's really a lesson in like, you know, when I talk to students or when I talk to people, people ask like, you know, tell me the magic, you know. <laughs> it, it's really collecting people and it's really collecting, you know, kind of the network and it, it's kind of those relationships. And, and that's how all of the big chapters in my life have kind of happened is sustaining relationships like over time and follow up and, and doing good work, you know, for a person like Mark Lazary, where the opportunity comes, this was not, you know, this was not Corn Ferry or Spencer Stewart, you know, coming and saying like, Hey, we've got a great, you know, C-level position. This was kind of evolved out of relationships, you know, and trust. And how do you, how do you run this? Which, which some of my other, you know, chapters of my career have. Yeah, again, a couple of things came out, but one of the things I want to talk about, and this was a question we were maybe going to look at towards the end, but since you brought up the people component now, you know, you have been successful in um, a, a, attracting a lot of really great talent to the organization. So one of the things that our students in our class are looking for is how do they get involved with an organization like the Bucks? And actually, one of my former students, I believe, still is working with the Bucks and came out of the program and started working with the Bucks. Not that you hired him, but he's at least at the Bucks. But uh, from your perspective, what are you looking for? You know, if you were going to recommend to students that are looking to get involved in the Bucks, you know, given your success, what are you looking for from people that you want to work with and building a team and making sure you can maximize these opportunities? Yeah, so so I, I guess it's best to talk about the culture and talk about yeah. kind of because that helps like set a baseline. So we're a performance culture, you know, in any job you're you're in, there are objectives, there are accountability. So so DNA wise, like you actually kind of have to want to aspire you actually want to perform you want to improve and i know that sounds silly but that's some people like that some people don't like that um we obviously have the no asshole rule so <laughs> that's easy and what we mean by that is somebody who interviews or we vet through the system literally talks to six to eight people and you know think of it as your goldman sachs way we're not testing people but we're trying to figure out how to retain you know 96% of everybody we hire and, and kind of eliminate that percentage of assholes, you know, that <laughs> you have a problem. And, and operationally, if you can do that, if you can get your normal eight, 9% down to four or 5%, you've really changed kind of like what you're doing with us with over 350 full-time and 1600 part-time that that's like a big deal. So, you know, for us, we look for initiative, you know, we're a sales organization. We want to drive revenue we also like happen to be in the customer service business. So like it or not, like you are in a service industry. So that's another part of the DNA. You actually have to even understand. And sometimes like the quant people don't get it, you know, like, <laughs> look for like, you actually have to like to socialize. You actually have to like 
like to work in a group. You've got to be collaborative. You've got to walk. You've got to work across uh, organizations. We've got like some centralized functions, like our finance, our legal, our, our business analytics that work across our real estate, our entertainment, and everything. So even like the most insulated kind of you know um, introverted folks normally in those kind of like have to have a sense of like wanting to be a big part of a team. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've said it kind of on the no asshole, but the reverse is likability, you know, like we want people to get along here, you know, to do it. So we think if you go through the process and you vet, you know, if you get seven to eight thumbs up, you know, resoundingly, we want you as much as you want us to come here. And it's small enough company that we can control that like in a good way. So I don't know if I answered your question. No, I think that's very helpful. I went through kind of like what we think about. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And, uh, you know, one of the questions we were talking about is how you use numbers and data and quantitative analysis. And you talked about it a little bit already, but I have to ask, how, how do you quantify the no asshole component, right? How do you determine the, from the 9% to the 45 to 5%? Well, we do it with real people, right? So you do it with like kind of how people are, we have like a performance culture. So you're evaluated, you know, twice a year. So you kind of know high performers versus low performers. You certainly know what interpersonal issues kind of, I mean, the nice thing when you started to do it right is the, the outline, the outliers like stick out like a sore thumb. So you've got, you know, 300 plus people like, you know, the five to six people that are having, you know, that are not right for it kind of like are really evident that they're not right. So there's, there's a real qualitative part of it is that, you know, you know, that, uh, they're not a fit, you feel it in your gut. And then there's yeah. a quantitative is it usually correlates, you know, they're not performing, they're disruptive, you know, in their departments and things like that. Really common sense. Like, I mean, my advice <laughs> is like, if it's not simple, even if, no matter what you do on, on, on database analysis, no matter what you do on the analytical side, if it, if it doesn't relate to something very simple answer, something's confused. Yes. And I, I, I want to get back to the quantitative analysis piece, but I wanted to make sure we covered in detail. Um, you mentioned before about a global brand and building a new arena and a new venue and dealing with the challenges from that perspective, both in terms of what's like just to build an arena, but also in terms of public financing and public support. Can you talk about that in more detail, what that process was like? As much, you know, again, we don't want you to reveal any kind of it was a bad pun, state secrets, but just and talk about detail, what it was like to, to well, build I, I, I explained it simply on a personal level, like we'll never do again, you know, <laughs> completely like had no passion towards the political process and, and kind of true lobbying, you know, true like selling mm-hmm. your narrative and your story and your value proposition is, is really challenging and kind of unattractive for me, you know, to go through. I mean, I'm so glad we're successful. It's like really kind of a career feather in the cap, like yeah. on a personal level, but not a great process really you know there are things where you know this was this was taken out of the state budget this was having to sit with 99 assembly you know state assembly people and literally one by one kind of talk them through on what the what the financial return was from the state uh to get it through i think you know it gives you a lot of accountability and and really a responsibility when you take public money which is a little bit different so we are beholden and we feel it you know in the right ways to to the city of milwaukee to the county and to the state in that they're all partners in in how we how we built it and kind of what our i guess what our responsibility is you know to to be a good citizen because we literally you know have, have taken 
public money. So we feel that there really is a big responsibility to to kind of give back to to you know even though we're an NBA team, it's how do we give the example? How do we step forward? And we're big socially. We're big you know social responsibility, big in community, and all that kind of leads into how this whole thing started. You know, it was really seated kind of in the public sector. How much do you think the politicians, uh, whether it's at the county, state, or uh, national level, uh, or regional level, how much do you think they understood what you were trying to accomplish and the, and the value that potentially was going to be created? Or how was their understanding of the sports business generally? Well, I think there's a dichotomy of people who really understand it. There's a real return yeah. where the income taxes that are, that are generated by professional players. Here's the incremental yeah. entertainment dollars. There's, here's the... Um, Here's the tax increase on a real estate level and, and valuation. But I think there's there, there's also the value of like, you know, traditionally and historically, you know, kind of stadium development hasn't really meant what it does today. I mean, now they're very rarely are you building just a stadium or just an arena. You know, you are really doing like a development. You are really yeah. much like our 30 acres, you know, is really kind of a neighborhood you know, that has components to live and work and to play versus here's a here's an arena on an island, you know, which is only generates its 150 to 225 operational days, you know, that they're events. So I think explaining that how the equation differs, I think the importance of this in downtown Milwaukee is like, you know, a billion dollars in the ground in a place that desperately needed it, needed mm-hmm. that vision of investment kind of helped you know, our narrative and our story to, to, to kind of get to where we needed to get to. Yeah. And I, I know, again, from, from talking with you and then reading articles about the importance of integrating with the community, both at a city and county level. So can you talk about like what it is that made it so important for the Bucks, I mean, beyond the venue itself, to really integrate with the community and the surrounding neighborhoods? Well, I think number one, you've got you've got everybody at Northwestern, so they understand Midwesterners, whether they are one or not, <laughs> and kind of what the values are, and, and how everybody's either from the town. It's so provincial, you know. It's either you're you're Midwestern or not. So imagine like a rough speaking, fast talking New York sales guy like myself, who works for you know three New York City billionaires, you know, in a big way, trying to come in and, 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 and kind of sell the proposition of, hey, we're, we're good, we're going to value, you know, it, it was all about building equity, you know, yeah. so it's like really interesting. You say it's almost like the only way you can, you know, think about it, whereas, you know, here in Wisconsin, you know, you can be in Milwaukee and, you know, somebody can be 20 miles away in, in Waukesha and think you're in different countries, you know, like, exactly. done. so we, you know, we had to ingrain ourselves and like almost prove ourselves like not only in pure investment, but, you know, people have a real value in, in what your personal commitment is and like, and, and people don't believe it till it happens. So I think like we probably didn't have the support, half the support we had until there was actually steel coming out of the ground, you know, in, yeah. in Milwaukee, and then maybe garnered the other half of support when there was a basketball game played, you know, to to get it down. So people really wanted to see it and feel it and, and kind of make it happen. So I, I think, you know, culturally, it was a very big deal for us. And I think our ownership, you know, kind of are in a place where they saw Milwaukee as an unbelievable opportunity yeah. to invest and to give back and to, you know, and, and to... And, and to really blossom from it. Yeah, and, and 
from you mentioned this before about arenas not on islands, right? That they're part of commercial developments and that teams are taking a more proactive approach to real estate and commercial real estate and commercial development. One of the things you also talked about is how MBA teams in particular are sharing best practices and sharing, um, you know, what works best, whether it's through uh, team ball or just obviously through conversations that you're having. So, um, you know, again, two part question one, you know, did you learn or had you learned from um, other teams and their experiences kind of going through this process from a commercial real estate development? And then two, how often are you sharing best practices with teams? I mean, so, so on a personal and professional level, every day for me. So I'm, I'm the yeah. greatest thief of best practices <laughs> of, of the world. So I'm, I'm a big fan of comparables. I'm yeah. a big fan of like, let's not reinvent like what's been done and how to improve it. And the NBA is like a real collaborative. So we compete on the court. We do not compete off the court. So, you know, just imagine having the Simon family own the Indiana Pacers and what they're, you know, the largest mall operators in, you know, in, in the country that, that have redesigned downtown Indianapolis, which is like an interesting comparable to yeah. do it. Like didn't have to go in blind on, you know, what, what parking structures, you know, kind of felt like what, what yeah. the ebbs and flows and what the best practices are. And more importantly, the costs and management. So the best example is I probably on a weekly level and probably saved thousands of hours talking with, Orlando, Brooklyn, and Sacramento, like the last three, and almost like a, a real kinship with, with those operators in here's what we, you know, everything from like, oh, please don't, you know, figure out your conduit so you can actually move TVs, you know, your thousand TVs to, you know, hey, steel structure to, you know, real, you know, tens of millions of dollars to do it. So, and the NBA has really kind of over the last, 20 years created team marketing and business operations team bow like a department whose whole structure is really like is warehousing best practices and really having that 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 research library you know to to grab from so we rarely do anything you know from i mean we use we use data and analytics to to make a lot of our business decisions but even beyond that like we really have this unbelievable advantage to look at specifically NBA teams and see what's worked and not worked in other, in other markets, whether that's retail promotions, ticket promotions, you know, different sponsorships that are laid out and executions. And it, it, it it's kind of made the league just explode. Uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but is there beyond what happened with um, the development of Pfizer forum? Is there one recent, kind of idea, I don't want to say that you stole, but you looked at another team from a ticketing promotion or sponsorship perspective that you've implemented recently that, you know, is a best practice that you saw from some oh, I mean, I would say we created a business with Miami Heat to, yeah. to literally mirror their business intelligence, you know, and their analytics. And they had spent millions of dollars over the last seven years to cre create a data pool, to create vehicles that, you know, Lincoln, that would have cost us millions, taken us years. You know, it's like one of those projects that never ends and never you know is never never lives but they had actually taken almost and again like-minded businesses like they own and run an arena they have surrounding they have surrounding property they certainly run a team and and have other events and they had clicked in you know everything from their pos system to to their pricing systems to uh to their ticketing systems like all these like intricacies that they had learned how to do it. And for us, it was click and play. I mean, we literally hired them. 
we, we purchased and bought their operating system and created a business for them, you know, as, as you know, now they've got the model to get down. So that's like one of the, you know, the, the purest examples to do it. And then I'd say, you know, we use, you know, we use every week kind of what's worked in, in different markets on, on a lot of online. So, you know, like for instance, like very rarely in, in, in digital and social makes it so easy. So you can see success or failure so quickly, but mm. you know, I'll tell you, we took great examples from, from the Portland trailblazers on Facebook live. You know, they, they just happened to have mastered like what this direct response and return was on ticket sales and season. So that's a great example. I mean, I'd say we put our own touch on it, but not really. I mean, we just like, we took something great and, started to play with it, but we took the idea, you know, that they had, they had really taken the initiative and done well with. Yeah. And we've been talking now a lot about business and data and analytics. And I, I do want to ask you directly about that in terms of how are you using uh, quantitative analysis, particularly as you've been building this global brand and, and building new revenue streams, new opportunities, whether that's from sponsorship, social, digital, how are you using data in terms of building your business and your brand? Yeah, I would say the best way to explain that is the way we're run is, is we've got three primary owners that are all kind of diverse and different. We've got Mark Lazary, who's a distressed debt guy who who runs Avenue Capital. Uh, we've got Wes Edens, who's a private equity guy who who's run Fortress and and kind of a serial entrepreneur and investor. And Jamie Dynan, who runs York Capital and is like a long-term equity trader. So as, as everybody kind of listening could understand, all different dynamics, you know, but the way we really run the business is almost in an investment recommendation scenario. So imagine that, you know, your big decisions and your big investments are really grounded by data and return and the economics of something. So rarely would you, you know, how to scale the house, you know, into different events and concerts are, are, you know, kind of literally done by the numbers, by historicals, by contemporaries, you know, how to, you know, we've reimagined like opening up restaurants and, and kind of taking those comparables and the market data in real way to figure out our pricing structure, you know, all the simple things, but really everything has like a concrete database mm -hmm. you know, in kind of what our thinking process should be um, or else like it's a no go, you know, it's, there's no, there's, there's not, you could certainly take risks. You could certainly take initiatives, but guessing and 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 saying you feel it in your gut is not is not the right answer kind of in this organization and i, I do want to uh, before we delve into that in a little more detail uh, i do want to ask about your relationship with the ownership group because you seem to have a uniquely positive relationship with the group but again not to give anything in detail it's just how you know that's one of the challenges when you're um, getting started in the industry is how do you interact with your bosses and, and senior management and you specifically seem to have a uniquely positive relationship um, with the ownership group. So how, how, you know, is it through communication? Is it through dialogue, through mutual understanding? What would you say has been the key to that success? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is, and, and again, I've always just over communication. So, you know, it's daily, it's weekly. It's, it's hard to have gaps, like in a relationship, you know, when you're constantly communicating. You know, the gaps really happen. You know, when, when there is, I mean, it sounds so simple, but that's really it. And transparency and, and having the tough discussions, like there are mess ups, there are problems, there are, and, and how do you really protect them? And, you know, on a personal level, you know, treating, you know, I, I, I treat the business and their, and their money as if it's mine, you know, in a really yeah. fiduciary, it, it, I know that, you know, kind of sounds and that I might 
do that naturally, you know, um, but, you know, it's building the trust and the relationship and, and how do you, you know, cause I think, I think what you kind of lose maybe in, in, in your MBA and, uh, and your professional experiences is that relationship. And I don't want to sound sold, you know, that how to do it, but I think the best way to explain kind of the way this organization is managed is kind of in our interaction. So if you're a manager in, at the Milwaukee Bucks or Pfizer Forum, like you have a direct one-on-one meeting with, with, with your direct reports, like once a week, that could be five minutes. That could be 10 minutes, but the communication, like the, and we are a service mm-hmm. business and we're totally interacting. The new normal will be very interesting, like in how we, how that changes it. But that's an example of setting the tone of, you know, as a leader, how can I not do that? You know, kind of managing up with uh with the owners in a big way and and to be honest like it's kind of the greatest board of directors in the history of the world because if you are transparent and you have an open dialogue there's really nothing they can't solve i mean they're three of the smartest by default you know folks they're all have incredible experience they've all managed or had parts of hundreds of companies you know in best practices so part of it is like again going back to that resource you know, pool that you're lucky to have. And are there metrics that they're looking for and you're looking for, you know, on a top of line basis that show the success uh, of the organization, particularly as it continues to grow globally in scale? Are there things that you're looking for as benchmarks for your success at, um, in this continued growth? Yeah. So this is what's fun about pro sports, right? So I'd say the two benchmarks, like one, win a championship, right? Which is so different, you know, what does that <laughs> yeah. mean and other things. So how do you build towards that? How do you resource that championship in a big way? So our largest expense, you know, is obviously players and then, then goes to coaches. You know, if you think about like the way our business runs. So one is winning an NBA championship and the other is really financial. So how do we, <clears throat> how do we lay out a financial plan, you know, over, you know, the one to three years and, uh, and continue to fine tune and refine it, but, you know, and beat it and surpass it, you know, based on, based on growth and efficiencies and cost containment and all those things. So we've got, you know, two big goals and and they kind of intercede. So we work like hand in hand, like with the GM, I mean, the GM and I, you know, and the coach, we all talk every day, if not every other day, just to check in, but that's another difference in our relationship. So, you know, one of the neat things about our owners is they all have day jobs, which is a little bit different than <laughs> other owners, you know? So I think other yeah. owners might be a little more like engaged and involved on a day-to-day type of thing, but they completely trust and, and have us, you know, accountable for the day-to-day, which is different. And we've created this kind of partnership and bond to just continue to focus on how do we win a championship? How do we continue to grow the business? Yeah, one of the things we talk about in class is the, you know, the most successful teams are often the teams that have the integration of the team operations and the business operations sides, and they're working together um, from the, you know, whether it's the coaches, the GMs, the players, uh, you, you mentioned you talk with them uh, on a frequent basis. What are, what's the information that they're looking for from your side? How, how, and what's the information that could be helpful for you as you're trying to grow the business and trying to grow uh, the different revenue streams? So I might go about it a different way. I mean, I feel like my job is to be a resource and a service. So like, how do I get, you know, like John Horse, who's our GM and, and, uh, and, and, 
and Bud, who's our coach, are all focused on how do we win? How do we have the best resources? How do we figure out what to do? So, so I almost kind of go to it in that way of how do I clean their plates so they can focus on, you know, everything from who we're drafting to what we're trading to how do we refine our cap to get it done. So on one, we're all partners. We almost share all information, which could be a lot different. You know, I have a, you know, I have a, a league meeting. I send my notes, you know, to the both of them and, and vice versa. So we don't really have kind of gaps of communication. It also helps us manage the owners, you know, in, in a big way. So we're, we're all in the same voice and all in the same, which is an interesting piece, but you know, for um, it, it's a, it's a really different, interesting field because some teams have like put the iron gate up, you know, to, you know, to what football operations and coaches and GMs are to their front offices and, and uh, and it's hard because there's a long legacy of, you know, kind of the the basketball folks or the basketball folks and the business folks or the business folks. But we're organized in a way that it's my accountability, you know, I'd say in the P&L for like what the overall result is. So that's a connecting point, you know, for all of us. So we make no decisions without us all kind of collaborating. You know, you're not doing you're not doing a trade. You're not waving. You're not doing, you know, because every dollar counts. So we're all together on that. Yeah, and speaking of every dollar counts, and you know, I wouldn't—I'd uh, be remiss if I didn't ask about some sponsorship questions. Obviously, given my background, but you know, there's been two things I think that have been unique to the Bucks. One is the naming rights deal with Pfizer Forum, and then two is just the jersey patches in general with the NBA. Um, from we'll start with Pfizer. How, you know, what was that process like? I think there were some people who were surprised that uh, Pfizer ended up being the naming rights partner, and I think it's been a great relationship. But, you know, how are you able to, you know, particularly obviously given your role with Pfizer Forum, how are you able to navigate the, the challenges, the complexities, and ultimately find such a good partner with Pfizer Forum? Well, I mean, it evolved. I mean, it evolved over years, you know, in kind of pitching. I think we, we, we kind of got so excited over the prospect of, like, having this innovative technology partner in Milwaukee, you know, to kind of yeah. – we, do, we understood early on that this is really the future, future of, of contactless and cashless transactions. Here's what this company is, $20 billion company is really about. And then kind of creating the value proposition and selling it in a big way. And how many different, how do they, how do we really leverage each other to kind of show the world, you know, kind of what the next gen of, of, of transactions will be like. And, and, you know, it's, it, Jeff Abuki, who is their chairman and CEO. I mean, listen, they're they're headquartered in Wisconsin. They're out of Atlanta. They're a global brand. They've got hundreds of thousands of customers. They're in the banking and they're in the fintech world. Um, it was it was a long journey that like took a lot of time to create the value and get it done. But it has been just awesome, you know, to really change. And I think when I say awesome, I mean like it's changing, you know, the perception, the brand of Fiserv itself, you know, in, in kind of like, it was a really a, a, a B2B, you know, total brand. I mean, there was no need for the consumer to know who, you know, Fiserv was. And I think as Fiserv evolves, obviously there'll be B2C, you know, components to it and probably C2C components as you get further, which was part of their roadmap to like, why would a big time sports sponsorship make sense? Yeah, and, and in terms of jersey patches, again, not, you know, obviously you've had the relationship with Harley Davidson, but 
how, you know, this was a new um, piece of inventory that's come up recently. Um, how, how did you view Jersey Patches and how do you view it, particularly in the context of building now the global brand and continuing to grow um, your presence internationally? Well, I think if you asked me three years ago, I'd have a totally different answer because it was how yeah. do you position. But if you ask me now, I mean, it's it surpasses naming rights to an arena, which could be a lot more local, even though we position as global and like the opportunities. But but a jersey patch is, you know, is, is the most valuable piece of real estate, like based on impressions, on on media reach, based on distribution, Um an association it it's it's kind of blossomed into kind of what the league had thought you know five years ago when they started to position it so i think we're still trying to harness like and explain and position the value you know it makes great sense in large markets you know that they're getting big price tags anywhere but you know for here in milwaukee i mean we think our our jersey patch is you know going to be worth more than our naming rights you know over a longer period of time to kind of get it and it all makes sense. You know, it's direct association with the players, it's broadcast and and streamed in over 215 countries. Here's like the quantitative side of it, of the billion dollars impressions. And here's like the associative nature of the brands, you know, literally connected to, to the NBA and the players. Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the Jersey patches and, and as we're getting towards the end of the uh, discussion is um, the impact of, of COVID-19 and the types of activations that will be coming, particularly if fans aren't allowed in venues. One of them that you already mentioned is contactless, contactless payments, which was the reason I wanted to use that as the Jersey patch as a frame. And some of these changes were happening regardless of COVID-19, and COVID-19 may accelerate those changes. So one, again, without talking about like the NBA coming back or anything like that, but how do you see COVID-19 um, impacting your business um, now, but also like, what do you think potentially are uh, medium-term and long-term implications in terms of new technologies, new ways of thinking, or new innovations uh, from a consumption perspective um, on a go-forward basis that could be accelerated because of COVID-19? Yeah, so I'll put them in buckets. Like, you know, I think it's a big operational change, you know, whether that's basketball operations, whether that's fan experience, whether that's communications and you know, kind of doing, I mean, think of the contact points, the physical contact points of how do you reduce yeah. those, you know, everything from how are you going to operate escalators to how do you, you know, have automatic doors to really revolutionizing and changing the way, you know, food and beverage, you know, are ordered and served. You know, I think it's kind of a big leap forward. The industry probably needed it. It's kind of going to be a good accelerant to to get it going where, we will go, you know, kind of mobile and really app centric in, in like a lot of interactions. I think the short term is is really fluid and like will change. So I think we'll go from fanless to, you know, to, to kind of to to building up to capacity, but that will take a while. You know, we're thinking fanless, you know, as certainly in the playoffs, which we're talking about now, you know, looks like it might be in Orlando, looks like, you know, we might have kind of a you know a bubble of, of of players you know playing an NBA playoffs and then restart the season in the fall probably a little bit later than normal and then kind of gradually like build up but I think you're going to have your social distancing and your pre-vaccine and your pre-treatment and then you're going to have your post yeah. you know and what do you do for that and uh, and some of it you know, it's an opportunity, but we're looking today on like what our CapEx, you know, kind of cost in the new normal, you know, like 
and some you don't know. Like we, you know, we spend days with our, um, you know, our our infectious disease control folks, our doctors, our lead folks, and like you know, what are surfaces? You know, like you know, what needs to, what's exposed, what's not. You know, what are, and it changes literally every week to get it done. But we we think there'll be, you know, this will be a slow way back, you know, to to full capacity to get it done, and there'll be there'll be a cost to it. And what it'll do to change the world is kind of virtually. So I think one of the opportunities the legal take is like, how do you view a game? You know, will be different. Mm-hmm. You know, how do fans interact? You know, in a whole different way. So, so the broadcast side of it, and the and the streaming side of it, and and the content side of it will take a big leap forward because you've got to engage. You know, this big group yeah. of fans without having you know without having them in the arena. Yeah, and that that was going to be my last question. Um, you know, obviously the NBA just signed a new deal with Microsoft, specifically focused on content, or one of the areas of focus is content personalization. Do you, A, you know, one of the things you talked about at the beginning of the podcast is how the uh, Knicks and interacting with the fans and the different audiences within the New York DMA. Uh, how have you seen the evolution of connecting with fans? And do you think the current, you know, situation with COVID will accelerate this way of uh, and changes potentially in fan engagement fan interaction and how you interact with your different audiences yeah i think it changes not a doubt i mean you will not have high five lines you know you're not you're not going to have you know huge meet and greets i mean i think you still have exposure and the experiential and you can create those uh to get it done i do think like you know you will be able to experience engagement interactions you know, from a vantage point as if you're a front row seat holder, you know, and, and kind of watch a game and that what you're already able to do in some form or shape, but, but think of it as like a cross, you know, a function across the league is like, how are you at home, you know, experiencing that feet on the wood front row experience in a big way. I do think we get back to, you know, we, we get back to engagement, you know, in, in live form. And I do think like what this period of time has done completely changed the way we think about producing and curating content, you know, in like a big way, like the players have become almost like, you know, more well-rounded and kind of like there's a lifestyle aspect, you know, there's, there's a community aspect there's, you know, of which, and, and by the way, there's a self narrative aspect that's kind of happening that, you know, will, will change like the way the perception. So, my hope is and what i really think opportunistically is like we are building all of this right now because of the need you know because live entertainment doesn't have an interaction but once we get back to having the real engagement you know our bucket our wealth bucket is like beyond belief because we've you know spent the last six to 12 months really creating you know unbelievable equity in what we can do online what we can do in broadcast what we can do you know, in, in sponsorship and, and virtual just by the need of how do we create value in a big way and how do we keep the fans engaged? I mean, that's what we spend every minute of every day thinking about because at the end of the day, it's engagement is what you monetize. So how do you, how do you engage people? Yeah, and I, I think that's a great place to end, right? That's the question that we're all thinking about and student, whether you're students or industry professionals is how to engage fans, whether in this environment or on a go-forward basis. So, Peter Feigen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being on your podcast. Thank you for a great conversation. And, and they can, you know, stay safe and stay healthy. 
All right. Thank you. Big Northwestern fan. My daughter's a freshman. So. <laughs>